Emily Wagden, pronouns she, her, is a master's student studying island biodiversity and conservation with a focus on the impacts of changing ocean conditions on crustaceans. Originally from Manchester in England, Emily now lives in Jersey, one of the Channel Islands where her study species, the brown crab, spider crab and European lobster also live. Emily shares her experience pursuing a career in wildlife conservation early on, as well as her efforts to stay optimistic and make a positive difference in the face of widespread climate change, pollution and other challenges worldwide that threaten the ocean and its inhabitants. Hello and welcome to It's a Wildlife podcast and blog sharing the great work being done for wildlife conservation worldwide and solving problems for ecologists by ecologists. If you're a fellow wildlifer, whether you're just starting out or you've been about the traps for a while, tune in and let's chat. You're in the right place. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. Did you want to start by introducing yourself and sharing a bit of your story? I'm Emily, Emily Wagden. I'm a 21-year-old master's student at the moment, and I'm currently based in Jersey, which is the Channel Islands, just north of France. I'm originally from Manchester in the UK, and that's pretty much me up to this point. Most of my life has been a lot of environmental education. So that's where I'm at in terms of the environment and what I'm doing at the moment. You seem to be super passionate from a young age, but when did your passion and excitement about wildlife really start? From a young age, I think I've always had that love for animals and nature, which I think most kids do. And then just as you grow older, you get different interests and you find that you're drawn to other things. But I felt like I've really kept that interested animals marine biology specifically I remember being quite young and having conversations with my friends and they were like what do you want to be when you grow up and I was like a marine biologist but I didn't really know that was sort of attainable and then definitely as a child I think I watched a lot of shows Bindi Irwin actually had a show in the UK that I used to love watching as I was growing up and I always thought that would be so cool because in the UK we don't really have many dangerous animals So watching shows about animals all over the world just really made me interested. And then when I got older and I was choosing what kind of degree I wanted to do, I had such an interest in science that it just kind of fit together really well. I loved biology all through school and then managed to find a degree that actually gave me biology and nature and the best of everything. That's the path I followed. Ecology just really drew me in and it ticked off everything that I really enjoyed. Oh, that's fantastic. You seem to be very clear on what you want and where you want to be, but a lot of people really struggle translating that passion they feel for the natural world into an actual career. Did you have any advice for people trying to find what they want to do, but maybe the options aren't presenting themselves? Yeah, definitely. I think more and more as I'm beginning to job search is what I'm realising is that in some cases, even just to work with the environment or the natural world, you don't necessarily have to have that scientific background, especially with a lot of conservation issues that we're facing and focusing on with climate change and biodiversity loss. It's actually really important that every industry really has that passion for the environment. So I've seen a lot of jobs that want a background in marketing or a background in business or communication or even the arts, anything that you're interested in. I think there's always a way to tailor it. If maybe you 
are now thinking that you want to go into the environment, but you've got a communications degree. There are so many companies that are hiring for people that have that passion, but also understand and know how to really promote and use social media platforms or know how to write or how to communicate. And a lot of the times in science, I think there is a bit of a disconnect between people that love science, love working in facts and dealing in facts. And a lot of the time we can really struggle to communicate things to people. If you've got a strength, even if it's not having a biology degree, you can always find a way to change it towards the environment if that's something that you're really interested in. And I think there's so many Facebook groups out there now as well. Facebook for me has been a huge platform for finding different opportunities and things that are available. People will share things and share their knowledge. There's a lot of questions asked. And actually, I think community is so important in science. Because some days I have no idea if what I'm doing is going to lead me to what I want. But as long as the general trend is moving forward and I find myself looking down new avenues, then I just have my fingers crossed that I'm still going to be really enjoying what I'm doing. You know, that is such incredible perspective. It's so important to enjoy what you do. And you absolutely don't have to force skills or experiences upon yourself because you think that that might be the only way to care for the environment. Mm -hmm. You can work in conservation with whatever skill set you have right now. Exactly. And so can we take a little step back? Because you mentioned that you're just starting out in your master's journey. Can you talk us through your research focus? Yes. So my master's is in island biodiversity and conservation. So I'm really focusing on island ecosystems because they're such an important place and refuge for a lot of species. Islands are home to a lot of endemic species and things you won't find anywhere else in the world. Um, and they're also really unique environments. They're sometimes missing um, really apex predators or they have less species, but really important ones. And they're just in general, a really interesting dynamic system to study. So I've got most of my theory out the way now and I'm moving on to my dissertation and I am based in Jersey and I'm looking at seabed temperature. So we've got loads of seabed temperature data that's been going back a few years and a lot of the time sea surface temperature is used as an indicator of climate change and I'm basically going to be looking at whether it is just as valid as sea surface temperature and I'm also specifically going to be looking at crustaceans. Our biggest fishery in Jersey is lobsters and crabs so it's really important for the economy to really safeguard those fisheries and that fisheries future with climate change. I think it's really important to understand how these species can be impacted by benthic temperature. So I'm going to be effectively looking at the impact of seabed temperature on crustacean species in Jersey and crustacean catch and hopefully future-proof Jersey's fisheries against climate change because already we're seeing sea level rise and sea temperature rise and these are going to really affect species that rely so heavily on temperature as part of their life history. A lot of crustaceans reach their maturity with certain temperatures and grow to certain sizes with certain temperatures. So if we have a better understanding of that, then hopefully we can really look after and protect these species whilst also utilising them because they're good for a lot of people's livelihoods, but they also have a lot of value to the ecosystem. So my general focus at the moment is a lot of climate research and sea temperature research and, of course, really cute little crabs because I do love a little crustacean. <laughs> That is such a niche. <laughs> yes. And so these lobsters are connected to the diversity of the island that you're working on. 
So the species that we've got in Jersey that I'm going to be focusing on are the brown crab, which is the edible crab, and it's the most valuable crab species commercially in Europe. And then I'm also looking at the European spider crab, which again has a distribution across Europe, and the European lobster. So a lot of studies I've been reading have been focused on the American lobster. And in a lot of cases, the American counterparts tend to be a lot bigger. If you look at American anything, a lot of things tend to be a lot bigger, I think. So got our little blue European lobster. They're really pretty. The shades of blue on them are stunning. But um, really interestingly, the trends with the brown crab that we have in the waters here seem to be that they're moving northwards with climate change, as a lot of species distributions are. And with the lobsters, they tend to favour a warmer water than the crabs. So for those guys, it's going to be really interesting because obviously lobsters are a very expensive commercial species. Crab meat is a lot more readily available for people. So if crabs move out of this range, then lobsters are going to be a lot more common and this could shift the market. But generally, lobsters tend to favour the warmer water. So they might do all right with a bit of sea temperature increase, whereas we might lose out on some really nice crabs that we, we've got here. But hopefully they won't move too far and hopefully we've still got time to stop things being too bad fingers crossed yeah absolutely and so when we're talking about these species being able to move can you talk a little bit about the degrees of change in the temperature and what that might mean for the distances that the crustaceans need to travel if we know anything about that yeah definitely so in terms of um, what we know for a lot of these crab species in Jersey is that they tend to have slightly different behaviors in general in terms of maturity because of their location so if you look at other brown crab populations across the UK they tend to be in slightly cooler waters anyway so as they shift northwards they will then encounter the other Channel Islands so Jersey is the most southern Channel Islands and they'll move into Guernsey's waters so Guernsey is the second biggest Channel Island here the intertidal zone is really, really key for a lot of that early life history. And hopefully they'll still have that area, even if Jersey is no longer appropriate for it. But generally, hopefully, because they tend to move and migrate into deeper waters, they will still be in the English Channel and still be there for a few years to come. But Jersey is quite interesting because we've got our own kind of current system, which makes our territorial waters effectively an island in themselves. So we've got slightly warmer waters than Guernsey does due to the currents. And therefore, I think it will be interesting as to see whether actually Jersey's waters, because of that, will begin to warm a lot faster than potentially areas that have less of those currents. So I guess in the next few years, we'll be seeing whether that really is playing a role in the migration and the movement of these species. And we'll just have to wait and see, I guess, which is not really the answer that you want, because it would be nice to know. And it would be nice if the climate wasn't changing at the rate that it is. But fingers crossed, there are still solutions out there and ways that we can combat this. Absolutely. And when we're talking about the ocean, a lot of the time, it's not just one factor. Unfortunately, a lot of things tend to compound in this space to make that ecosystem very challenging for the critters that are contained within it, especially for crustaceans. Definitely. With a lot of crustacean species, a lot of things I've been reading recently have really been showing and saying how actually you can't just look at one factor, such as temperature, which I'm looking at in this case. And draw all these conclusions because actually there's so much that can impact 
an animal, how they really develop and their life history and when they reproduce and how they grow and how big they grow. And so we see increases in the amount of carbon or CO2 concentration that's in the water, then that can impact them. If we see changes in salinity, then it changes in the temperature, that's going to impact how big they can grow. It can also mean changes in the disease prevalency in an area. There are so many different factors at play which could really determine the direction in which anything goes. And just taking one thing as a measure will not give you a whole picture. There's a huge knock-on effect for anything that we look at. Absolutely. And in the case of the ocean, we're often fed so much negative press about the state of our waters How do you stay positive? I think it's really difficult. I definitely have days where I am the most negative person in the world. Like, oh, what's life going to be like on the planet? But just even yesterday, I went out and did some potting surveys and we saw so many lobsters and so many spider crabs in a no-take zone. So an area that's really important that no one can take from it. So they have this refuge to go where they can grow or develop and eventually protected areas will spill out into the wider ocean and then when those individuals are caught it's actually better for fisheries it's better for the species there are a lot of benefits so I think just having days where you you go out and you do see the environment just as it is seeing all those lobsters and all those spider crabs was actually really nice because I was like okay they are there yeah there are going to be some big issues and we're trying to combat them but at least we're trying and today very much the mindset of we have hope and other days I'm not but I think if generally you can do something that makes you see that there is still hope overall you've got that hope and that desire and actually we have solutions and we have information and we have science and we have policies that can help you're going to be a lot more successful long term if you don't just think everything's going to fail because we are going to lose species and we are going to have those losses but If we can try and mitigate those impacts as much as possible, then at least we're still doing something. I think that's such an important point. It's so easy to lose hope, um, but doing something, however small, is still something and it should never be um, tossed in the rubbish as meaningless or anything like that. What are some things that you would suggest people can do to do their bit for the ocean? I think something really simple is litter. Recently, I've seen a lot of little fish pop up by drains, even in the centre of the island. And I think it's just a reminder that actually everything will eventually lead to the sea. When it rains, things will run down roads and then very much finding Nemo where it's like everything leads to the ocean. But then also there are huge, huge issues with corporations and politicians not doing as much as they can for the environment. So I think even if you're doing everything as an individual, that one little step further is emailing your local politician, your local MP, and also complaining to those big polluters, those big companies. Changing our consumer habits is so difficult because we all operate within a system that actually a lot of us didn't really choose to have the consequences that it does but we do have power in the decisions that we make and where we buy from if we have the privilege to do that so I think there are things we can be doing on a bigger level I think a key is really driving home to those companies that ultimately are driven by our money and our want is to really express our interests 
And maybe that is really, really optimistic and hopeful. And, but I, I have that hope today. So today I'm, I'm giving that as my two cents. No, I think that's really, really important. And it really comes back to what you were saying earlier on in our discussion about how everyone can be an advocate, regardless of your skill set, you can work to conserve the environment. For sure, for sure. Absolutely. Now, I'm sure there's a whole lot of people out there listening who would just love to be doing something that you're doing right now. Would you be able to give advice from your experience on some of the ways you'd recommend starting out that process? Yes, definitely. I think, first of all, go for anything that you are really interested in. I know for my undergraduate degree, I applied to a lot of different universities and then eventually settled on one that was right for me. I had a lot of failures as well. I had internships that I applied for and didn't get because maybe that just wasn't right for me at the time and actually probably wouldn't have coincided with me being where I'm at now. And I think if you see an opportunity that you're interested in, go for it. Even if there will be points in that job application that potentially you don't fit the box. But nine out of 10 people won't have every single one of those things. And I found, especially speaking to a lot of my friends um, and other women in STEM, I found that actually a lot of us will tend to not apply for things if we don't think we're confident enough or quite tickle the boxes and I just think go for it and we should all have that confidence in ourselves if you are really really wanting this opportunity then my thing is just to apply and if you don't get it something else will come along it's all about having that consistency and the confidence to go for something because you can't you won't be motivated 100% of the time it's really demotivating there's some an opportunity that you did really want and perhaps you didn't get it but fingers crossed something better will come along and something more suited to you will come along and that is is really important so I'd say just keep going for it and if there's something you're interested in then give it a shot give it a go and if you don't get it then on to the next one honestly I think that is phenomenal advice reframing your so-called failures as lessons is really really important and especially when starting on your own from scratch just take a step back and tell yourself that what's yours won't miss you exactly 100% that is so true Emily, thank you so much for speaking to us today. If anyone was interested in finding out more about you and your research, where could they go and do that? So I have an Instagram account called Emmy in the Wild. So that's M-E-E-M-M-Y. Absolutely. And we'll provide a link to that in the show notes down below. So thank you once again for coming on. Such a young age. You have some incredible insights. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of It's a Wildlife. If you've been inspired by our discussion or have something to share, please get in touch, leave us a review or share the love with your network. We'll chat soon.